When it comes to Jesus, the desire of our heart should be to be more like Him every day in our lives. You and I should love what Jesus loved and what Jesus continues to love. And that means that we must love the church. And so last Lord's Day and again today, we want to consider the New Testament church. You know, any serious student of the Word of God will have to come to understand that there is much emphasis placed upon the church of our Lord in the New Testament. Now, there are a lot of people who perhaps enjoy and studying about Christ and His life and His death, His burial and His resurrection. But not as many people who appreciate His church. And yet the church belongs to Him. And so important is His church that He died to even purchase her with His own blood. Husbands, love your wives. Even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Ephesians 5.25 You see, that was the price that was paid for his church that he gave his very life. And so last Lord's Day we began to consider the New Testament church and we've done that on numerous occasions in the past and it will be done in the future as well because always we want to emphasize to each generation the importance of the New Testament church. The importance of what Jesus went to that cross and died for in order for you and I to have that hope. You just can't be saved without it. You can't go home, your eternal home, without it. That's just how important is the church. And so the church was purposed in Christ, and we noticed that last week from Ephesians 3, 8-11. through And likewise, we learned that the church was prophesied by the prophets. Very important is the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. Isaiah 2 and Daniel 2 and other passages that we had references made to the church or to the kingdom. And we see that those passages fulfilled as we studied the New Testament and we consider what was established on that day of Pentecost that we can read about in Acts chapter 2, where the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved, Acts 2.47. And so we find that for the first time, we find Christians being added to the church on the day of Pentecost, after those who had gladly received the word, Acts 2.41, preached by the apostle Peter and the rest of the apostles, They were baptized, and the Lord added them to that special entity of the special family, identified as the church of our Lord. Now today, we're going to move on with our message and consider something else that is very, very important. And that is that the New Testament church has a particular pattern to follow. A particular pattern to follow. Purposed in Christ prophesied by the prophets. And so the New Testament church follows a particular pattern. Now there are many in the religious world that 
reject this idea of pattern theology, as the, they sometimes call it scoffingly. But do we really find a pattern in the New Testament? Well, Peter and Paul and the rest of the apostles uh, preached about it. They preached in a particular way, and so they preached about a particular message as well. And they strengthened and edified the New Testament church, and they also encouraged them to hold forth to sound words, or the pattern of sound words, 2 Timothy 1.13. What is this pattern that we're to follow? Well, it is the New Testament, isn't it? You see, when Jesus shed His blood on the cross, He provided a very new and better covenant. The New Testament, Hebrews 9.15. And the means that He took the Old Testament out of the way, He, he took it and nailed it to the cross, Colossians 2.14. But how much of the Old Testament, how much of the Old Testament was taken and nailed to the cross? Every bit of it. Every bit of it was nailed to the cross. Now we learn from the Old Testament, as a matter of fact, some of the most marvelous principles in all the Bible can be found right there and taught in the Old Testament. And we would have more difficulty understanding the New Testament if we didn't even have an Old Testament. And everything that was written aforetime were written for our learning, Romans 15, 4. Therefore, we learn from a study of the Old Testament. But we're not under the Old Testament today. We're not under that old law as to govern us today and even for us to be judged by on that last day. But there is a distinction. You know, many have a hard time understanding that. Of which is... Why someone said perhaps the most difficult page in all the Bible, and that's that white page that separates Malachi to Matthew. Amazing, isn't it? But there's a distinction there. There's a difference there. We today are under the New Testament of Jesus Christ. And when one is obedient to the gospel, then that makes him a New Testament Christian. You see, the... A specific item there to call it New Testament Christian? That's what I would ask somebody, well, are you a New Testament Christian? They're like, hmm, what do you, what do you mean by New Testament Christian? Because it's very important to understand that the Bible only makes Christians only and the only Christians. And that we're New Testament Christians. The New Testament Christian is added to the New Testament church. He becomes a member of that special family, the New Testament church, and, and thus God's family. But can we identify it? You know, there are many that say that that's impossible and that the, if there is no pattern, obviously you can't identify it, right? But I reject that kind of thinking. I believe that, there, that it is still very important for us to go to the New Testament and try to identify with the church of the first century. And whatever they did that was approved by God, by the apostles, the Holy Scripture, can in fact be followed by us even today. We call it the Old Jerusalem Gospel. We want to be back to that old first century 
Old Jerusalem church. In fact, that's the reason that we oftentimes speak of restoring New Testament Christianity, and we call that the restoration plea. In restoring ancient Christianity or primitive Christianity, And that will always be a noble plea to call men back to the Bible and to the simple truth of the New Testament. And so therefore the New Testament church is going to teach the New Testament plan of of salvation, right? Whatever is true that men and women, responsible boys and girls, had to do to become Christians in the first century, then by reason that's exactly what we have to do today, isn't it? So we put emphasis upon hearing the Word of God. Several times God spoke from heaven and He said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But I know He did that when Jesus was baptized, but also on the Mount of Transfiguration, as recorded in Matthew 17, God goes on to say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. Well, one cannot have faith instilled in his heart unless he hears the gospel, Romans ten seventeen. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so we sometimes say, well, here's a man who hears the word of God, and through hearing the word of God, that faith is then instilled in his heart. And that's important because without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews eleven six. And the person who has had faith instilled in his heart has this change of mind that's called repentance. And remember that without repentance, one likewise cannot be right with God, either Acts 17, 30, and 31. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, Romans 10, 10. Then we learn that confession itself is very important, but confession of what? Confession that Jesus is the Christ, the very Son of God. Just as the Ethiopian nobleman stated in Acts chapter 8, and that then that penitent believer who's confessed Jesus is baptized or immersed in water for the remission of sins, we find that that's all in accordance with what we read in Acts chapter 2 in verse 38 when those that were convicted said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter and the rest of the apostles said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. Five steps in the gospel plan of salvation, that's right. Don't like that kind of terminology, well, how else can it be? I mean, you see, irrationally, or rationally and logically, speaking of it, has to be hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. There's no other way. But of course there's a sixth step as well, and that's to live faithfully in accordance to God's Word. But can a person be saved without hearing? No. Can a person be saved without believing? No. Can a person be saved without or without repenting? No. Can a person be saved without making that good confession of the sweet name of Jesus? No. Can a person be saved without baptism? No. And it has to be in that order. 
There's no logical way, no other logical way. And so one who has never heard the word cannot repent. One who has never believed cannot be baptized. But one who has heard and believes and repents and confesses Christ and is baptized, that person can and will be saved. It's as simple as that. And so the New Testament church is going to make that known because who else will? The church, the pillar and the ground of the truth, the support of the truth, that which undergirds truth, everything upon which we are built is upon God's truth. And therefore, if a religious group preaches some plan of salvation that is indifferent to what the New Testament teaches, it cannot be identified then as what? A New Testament church just will not work that way. But we're talking about the New Testament church tonight. Not only does the New Testament church make known the New Testament plan of salvation, it also likewise follows the Scriptures with regard to its organization. The church of our Lord is sometimes called a body, and it's one of function as a body. The body has a head, and, and that Body, the church, the head is Christ, Ephesians 1, 20 and following. And Christ Jesus is the head of the church, and that's right, that he be the head of the church, because he suffered and died for it and shed his blood to purchase it. He's the one who founded the church, and so he's the rightful owner and head of the church, and there's no earthly head of the church of our Christ, and I found it so funny with studying with some religious people and religious groups, and they'll say, well, where is your headquarters? I said, it's in heaven. And we don't have an earthly organization or headquarters for the Lord's church. Though we know that some religious groups talk about the vicar of Christ who resides in Rome. Other denominational groups will have the president of the convention or the synod, but Jesus Christ is the head of his church. We are interested in New Testament Christianity, and so when we study the New Testament scriptures, we find many congregations being established, that is, congregations of the Lord's church. Romans 16, 16, it says that the churches of Christ salute you. There's not a sectarian, that's not a sectarian designation. But rather that these are the churches which belong to Christ and Him only. They are identified as those which belong to Christ because they always follow a particular pattern that is set out in the New Testament Scriptures. And so our organization, like all things in the church of our Lord, is quite simple. As a matter of fact, if you consider some of the denominational organizations in America today, and we we find many of them are quite complex, aren't they? Quite complex. It takes a little bit of work to investigate all these various religious groups that understand their complexity of their organization and their in their church government. But not so with the Lord's church, the New Testament church. Christ Jesus is the head, and 
for what is best regarding his cause, each congregation is autonomous. You see, each congregation is under its own local eldership. Matter of fact, not one person is in charge of the Church of Christ, nor any particular congregation. Well, somebody says, well, help me understand the Church of Christ, this organization. Well, I can take you to one particular book, and we can go to the book of Philippians, and I can go to one particular chapter in the book of Philippians as chapter 1, and I can go to one particular verse in Philippians, and that's verse 1. And I can show you the organization of the New Testament church right there in Philippians 1 and verse 1. Paul is writing, and he identifies the one who's with them, that's Timothy, and that they are servants of Jesus Christ, and that they are addressing the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops, and the deacons. You see the organization of the New Testament church, bishops or elders who oversee, whose qualifications are set forth in such passages as 1 Timothy 3, and the deacons whose qualifications are likewise set forth in that same chapter. And with the saints, every child of God, every Christian is identified as a saint. You know, a saint is not someone who is a special designation, uh, designation necessarily in the church of our Lord. But if he's a Christian, if he's a member of the church, he's a saint. That's how they are identified in the first century. And so there you have the complete organization of the New Testament church, an autonomous congregation that was at the church in Philippi, which had overseers or bishops or elders and deacons who served in that congregation. They were not, uh, they were there along with the saints, the members that made up this congregation. We don't have to look for some special clergy or some special hierarchy. We don't have to get caught up in the complexities of modern day denominationalism. Just follow the New Testament. Simple as that. Let us cooperate with other congregations as they seek to fulfill their New Testament responsibilities. But each congregation is autonomous. Therefore, Congregation A, its elders, will take care of Congregation A. And that's it. We don't need Congregation B over here, its elders, telling Congregation A what to do or vice versa. We work in harmony as we can do. So each congregation doing what it can to promote and advance the cause of our Lord Jesus Christ. But this simple way is the way that God had designed it. And really, when you study religious groups and how they operate, you see the wisdom behind God's plan. Because they have it so wrong. And we're interested in a pattern. And the pattern is the New Testament. And so it is that the New Testament church is going to teach the one plan of salvation. It's going to be organized in a very particular way. But then also with regard to our worship as well, John 4, 24. Remember the Jesus words when he said, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit, attitude, and in truth, God's word. Now how can we do that? 
By understanding Colossians 3.17, that whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. And so we're concerned about doing that which is authorized by our Lord Jesus Christ. And how does He authorize? Well, He authorizes through His Word. You see, the New Testament is that which was inspired by the Holy Spirit. The apostles had preached that which had the approval of heaven behind it. And so it is in Acts chapter 2 that we find a group of people that are not only commanded to or committed to God, but likewise committed to one another as well. And so we notice that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking up bread and in prayer. Now, just like that, we talked about the five steps in the plan of salvation, and sometimes we talk about the five acts of worship that's also bought by many in the world. But I can, but all I can say is this, is that when one studies New Testament worship and the assembling of the saints, he finds five God-approved acts in that worship assembly. What are they? Well, based upon what we study in the New Testament and what we observe in the New Testament church of the first century, we find that those Christians had engaged in these various acts of worship while gathered together in the assembly and they consisted of singing, of praying, of studying, and of partaking the Lord's Supper, and of giving. And that's all authorized, isn't it? When the saints come together on the first day of the week as authorized, they sing, they pray, they study, they partake of the Lord's Supper, and they give. And so a religious group then comes along and says, well, you know, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper quarter." Uh, I can't see why you take a, partake of it every first day of the week because it kind of becomes a, a monotony and you kind of lose the effect of it. So we've decided to do it quarterly. Well, my question is, where is your authority for that? There's no authority in God's Word, in the New Testament specifically, as we follow that pattern, where anybody had partaken of the Lord's Supper quarterly or monthly or twice a year. It's always been upon the first day of the week, Acts 20, verse 7, when the saints came together on the first day of the week to partake. And I, I realized that every week has a first day. There's 52 weeks a year. You can't get around that. Every first day. Don't identify yourselves then as a New Testament church if you don't do it every first day of the week. Because that's what the New Testament church did upon the first day of the week. And so we follow what the New Testament teaches with regard to the pattern of worship, doing only that which has been authorized by the New Testament of Jesus Christ. Now remember, according to Acts chapter 2, the New Testament church was united. Now understand this, somebody says, well, there's a lot of division even in the Lord's church. But let me tell you this, faithful Christians are united. 
They're, they're united. If any man speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God, First Peter 4.11. If you speak as the oracles of God, and so do I, we have unity. You can't get around that. We're in fellowship one with another. In fact, when you find division, which is something that God repeatedly condemns, that's not the New Testament church. Even Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does so emphatically in 1 Corinthians 1.10 when he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same name, or same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Speak the same thing. He doesn't mean that we're all alike with regard to personality. But when it comes to matters that are doctrinal in nature, what do we do? Stand united. He didn't say that we are all alike in our opinions and our judgments, no. But when it comes to those matters that are doctrinal in nature, we stand united. Stand united upon the Holy Scriptures. Isn't that what Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17? Asking God that His people be united, and He prayed, Sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy word is true, John 17, 17. The truth of God which unites us. And then in verse 21 of John 17, here's his prayer, that they all may be one, even as I, or art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The New Testament church can convert the world by standing united. United together upon God's divine truth. And that's the reason, that's the reason that so oftentimes our efforts are hindered. Isn't that true? Satan knows that. What causes disunity? Well, just disrupt the communications. Just let us all be teaching various and sundry doctrines. And then you can't convert the world by no means. I've had people say, you know, with all the different churches that are out there, I don't know who to believe. I have to say I agree. But I also say, let's go back to our Bible. Let's go back to the New Testament. Because the New Testament church is a united group that had all things common. Acts chapter 2. And they practice as they preach New Testament Christianity. But then Peter reminds us, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. First Peter 2.9 Likewise, as New Testament Christians who make up the New Testament church continually look to the very character of Jesus, and desire to make that known. Told to live in such a manner which would become the gospel of Christ. Paul is stating in Philippians 1.27. In other words, let Christ be seen in you. You see, that's the way he is made known. And as we think about that, that leads us to something else to consider with regard to his pattern. What, what is her mission? 
What is the mission of the church? That's a good question, right? I mean, a lot of people today rely upon gimmicks that might attract people for a while, but that has to be constantly changing, doesn't it? Because people grow tired and weary. They want to be entertained. We live in an entertainment world, and thus we're entertained at home with the one-eyed God. We're entertained at home with our music and so forth. And so when we come to services, we feel like we still need to be entertained. We're entertained when we go to the movies. We're entertained when we go to concerts and so forth. Well, why can't we be entertained at church? In the assembly? You see, there's no authority for it. God only authorized the five acts of worship and them only for us to do on the first day of the week. What is the fundamental mission of the church? I recall that Jesus gave a good illustration about the mission of the church when he said that a sower went forth to sow. Luke chapter 8. What did he sow? Well, he sowed good seed. He knew he had good seed, and so he confidently would sow his seed. Everywhere he went, he would sow good seed, regardless of what might happen to that seed. Because some would fall on the wayside. The birds of the air came and ate the seed, snatched it away. But he kept on sowing. Right? But then some fell on thorny ground, the thorns grew up, choked it out. But he kept on sowing. Some fell on rocky soil, but couldn't take root. He kept on sowing. Because sometimes that seed would then fall upon what? Good soil. You see, that's what we're looking for, is the good soil. In order for that seed to germinate. To grow. Into a New Testament Christian. The church sows that seed as the seed, as the Word of God. That good soul, the honest, good hearts of men and women, boys and girls that are responsible, accountable. And so the church sows that seed and thus reaps an abundant harvest. And so as we seek to be united, we seek to accomplish the mission of the New Testament church that we make. Jesus known through the message that we preach, through the lives that we live. And that leads us to our fourth and final point in our message, that so far we have seen how the New Testament church is purposed in Christ. It's prophesied by the prophets. It follows a particular pattern. But what about the promise that is made to the church that has to do with their destiny? Does the church have anything at all to do with one salvation. I've mentioned this before. Just go back to the cross. And I want you to look into the eyes of Jesus. And I want you to ask him why he's doing what he's doing. Why would he endure all the things that he endured to go to the cross? He's going to say, I'm doing this for the church. Because he died to purchase the church. 
And then someone asked the question, is the church at all important? Does it have anything to do with our salvation? Would Jesus really respond that it has nothing to do with your salvation? No. He would not say that because it has everything to do with your salvation. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and is the savior of the body. Ephesians 5.23 You may ask many of your religious friends, how many bodies does Jesus Christ have? They're going to say one. How many churches? Multiple. Now, the church is the body. There can only be one. You see? And so what is the promise made to those who are members of the New Testament church? Salvation is the promise. The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved, Acts 2.47. And when Jesus comes again, He's going to be looking for nothing but Christians. And where will they all be found? In the New Testament church. He will receive the kingdom. He will give it to the Father, 1 Corinthians 15.24. And so the church has everything to do with our salvation, and therefore we need to continue to study and understand all the principles of the New Testament church that we find that relate to this very special entity, the New Testament church. Know that it is not right to say that I can have Christ, but I don't have to have His church. That, that bothers me when I hear people say that. Well, I just don't see the importance of the church. I'm a Christian and I can worship God anywhere and everywhere. If you have Christ, you have His church. Because the church is His body. Be faithful to Jesus. Be faithful to the church. Love Jesus, but love the church. Look forward to seeing Jesus, but know that to see Jesus, you have to be in His church, for which He died, for which He shed His blood, and we can identify that even today. You see, perfect people, not at all. Striving people, yes indeed. Yes indeed. And know this about the church of our Lord, it's not composed of self-righteous, perfect people but rather forgiven people. People who have been forgiven in Christ and are found in His body, the church. Are you in His body, the church, even today? It's important that you be in His church. just as important as it is to be in Him. And the same baptism that puts you into Christ, likewise, will put you into his church. It's a simple message. I think we could, we confuse it by trying to figure it out when it's just it's simple. We need to hear it. We need to obey it. And if you're subject to the invitation, even time, we hope that you'll make that decision. Get things right. Tomorrow may be too late. I am resolved no longer to linger, and I hope that you are as well. Come to Jesus as together we stand in the same.